Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Glad you all slipped, slid your way in and endured the cold to be together to fellowship around our Savior this morning. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. going to read the first 15 verses here together this morning. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means, now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles." I am a debtor, both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful once again for our Savior, for the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. And even as we approach the book of Romans, it's a book that teaches us about our Savior and about the salvation he's provided for us, the Christian life he's provided for us, and all the, all the blessings that we have in Christ. And Father, we rejoice in him today. And Father, today in our communion table, we remember him and his great love for us and, willing to, and his willingness to go to the cross to be our Savior, to take our sins upon himself so that we might be forgiven and assured of eternal life. And Father, we rejoice in him today. We worship him. And we pray today, as we study your word once again, that you would open our understanding. As we begin to study this book, Father, help us to understand what you're trying to say to us. May we understand your word that our faith might be founded not upon the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so we trust your spirit to be our teacher, the spirit who re re reveals to us the deep things of God, who promises to illumine us and to guide us in the truth. Father, we would depend upon him today. And Father, we pray that for those who aren't with us today, that you'd watch over them wherever they're, they're at. Some are experiencing sicknesses and other issues. Father, we pray that you would draw them to your side. You would watch over them. And, and for us who are here, Father, pray that we would be of, of one mind and one heart together as we strive for the faith of the gospel and that we together could grow uh, into the fullness of Christ. And so we give thanks for each one who's here for this opportunity to worship and sing and study your word together. May you be glorified through our service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone has said that the, if, there, if you were to choose one book of the Bible, or of the New Testament, and if you can only have one book, that Romans might be that book. Because in Romans, we find a thorough covering of the Christian faith. 
we find it, it's discussion concerning salvation and as well as sanctification and, and, and lots of information in between. In fact, as you consider Romans in the first part of the book and the, from the middle of chapter one through the middle of chapter three, it talks about the depravity of man. And then from there through chapter five, we see a discussion concerning salvation. We saw the salvation God has provided for man through Jesus Christ. In chapter six through chapter eight, we find a very informative and important foundational discussion of sanctification of the Christian life and how we can enjoy victorious living um, in our God. And we, then as you get to chapters 9 through 11, we find this tremendous passage on the sovereignty of God and his plan for Israel. And what about Israel? And where do the Gentiles fit into God's plan for history and so on? And then as you get into chapter 12, it starts with that great passage which, which beseeches us to present our bodies a living sacrifice and introduces this, the last four chapters or five chapters of the book that discuss our service as Christians. And so it's a tremendous treatise when it comes to the salvation God has provided for us, and it gives us many, many foundational truths as we study this book. Now, we're not sure who planted the Church of Rome. The, you know, we don't, we don't find that historically. It's what you'll find. You don't find anybody, uh, any apostles specifically before Paul wrote this letter, having been in Rome, planted the church in Rome. And, and yet, if you turn to Romans 16, the end of the book, where Paul makes some comments as well in regard to his coming, there are many who believe, and seems to be likely, that the church just grew out of converts who had been, who had come across the Apostle Paul and maybe other apostles' ministry in their missionary travels across that part of the world. It's interesting, and in that God, that Paul mentions to us that he builds on no other man's foundation. That was his desire in his in his Christian experience, and. And yet he, here we find this tremendous concern and treatise that he sends to the Roman believers. Now, we also see that in this chapter, in chapter 16, that Paul had mentions many people. In fact, there's more people mentioned in this ending of the book. As you know, in many of Paul's letters to the churches, he mentions several people that have ministered with him, alongside of him, those he knew he wanted to greet. And yet we find a lengthy list here. And it starts here in verses 1 through 3, where he commends Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of the church in Sancria. And chances are, it seems that Paul wrote this letter from Sancria, and she was the one who had carried this letter to Rome. And that you receive her, verse 2, in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and a sister, whatever business she has need of, for, you ind for she indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. And then greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And so we find here two people mentioned that Paul had come across in an Acts, um, in the book of Acts 18. I think you find this this time when Paul comes in to Philippi and is uh, hosted by Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. They had the same trade. They hosted Paul, and then they ministered alongside of him in Philippi, and yet apparently had also returned to Rome. As well, and then if you jump, if you go on to verse four, you'll find, you'll find throughout this chapter these many, many people that are mentioned here in regards to those who had labored with Paul. Verse six, it says, "Greet Mary, who labored much for us, and Adronicus and Julia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me, and then Ampelus, my beloved in the Lord." 
verse 9, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and so on and so on and so on. He mentions these people that apparently he was familiar with, people he had come to know uh, some other place in, in his ministry and in his life. And, and thus many believe because of this familiarity that the church simply grew out of a family of believers who had come to know Christ through the ministry of the apostles, maybe specifically Paul, maybe Peter and others, maybe Christians who had just moved to that area and had shared their faith and Christ, people had gotten saved. And so there's not really to this church at Rome any single... from the law is revealed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, that's the Old Testament times, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so he puts an emphasis here in this passage on God's righteousness that would be provided for mankind to equip him for heaven. God's righteousness, as we see later in the, in the book, that is produced in us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk by faith and so on. And so that on this theme of God's righteousness provided for us through the work of Christ as a gift from God, because Jesus having been a propitiatory sacrifice, verse 25, by his blood, we can then by faith receive his righteousness. And that's, when, and that's how a person is saved. And they put their faith in Christ and God gives them, clothes them with, attributes to them the righteousness of Christ. And therefore we stand in his righteousness, fit and ready for heaven. And so that seems to be the underlying theme as you go through this book the righteousness that God has provided for man, a righteousness we can't provide for ourselves. And that's why this, this book, after the introduction here in the first 15 verses or so, it begins to talk about the depravity of man. Lay that foundation of the fact that man has a need for to be saved and to be justified before God because of his sinfulness before God. Now, as you consider the, the outline or the divisions of the book, you, you could outline this several different ways, but there are three major divisions. Chapters 1 through 8 are the doctrines of salvation and sanctification. As you get to chapters 9 through 11, it's Israel and the sovereign plan of God. And then chapters 12 through 16, we find that great section on Christian service. That are major divisions, and though there's much information that could be plugged into that outline in each one of those sections. As we begin here in this, in this chapter, in this lengthy introduction, we find much of it is about Paul and about his, his ministry and his and his. And his his, his motivation, and so on. And he starts out in verse 1 in regards to his calling. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Notice three things there. I hope you see them. Three things Paul refers to himself as. The first one is a bondservant. No, a bondservant was simply a willing servant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant was one who was willingly 
attach themselves to someone who was willing to serve. He wasn't, he wasn't forced into slavery. He was a willing servant. That's the picture that that word paints. And Paul says, I'm a willing servant. I'm not chained to Jesus Christ by, by any means, but I'm willing to serve him. I'm a bond servant. And people would know what that meant. I'm willingly serving my God. And the second thing he calls himself, he says, called to be an apostle. He refers to his calling here to apostleship. And we know the apostles laid the foundation of the church, we're told in Ephesians. They're the ones who, who received the word of God from Jesus Christ and then preached it to the, to the then known world and laid the foundation of the church. They had authority. In fact, throughout the years, as the, as the New Testament was, was gathered and collected and written, the, the basis of authority was, was it true to what the apostles taught? They were the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They received their truth from Jesus Christ. They had apostolic authority. And that's why there's no apostles today. And as far as I know, none of you live long enough to see Jesus Christ some 2,000 or so years ago. And so they had the authority. And so he, 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 he recognized that he was called. God called him and appointed him to this responsibility. And then the third thing he says about himself, he separated to the gospel of God. And he recognized that his responsibility, his focus in life then, was to fulfill his, his apostleships in being set apart, separated to the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose again was his life's commitment. And that was his fulfillment to, to, be, to preach that message. And that's why he, he uh, after that, he talks about then the message he has. First he talks about his calling. Then he turns to his message, verse 2, which he promised. What did he promise? The gospel, the good news of Christ. He promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so Paul's message concerned Jesus Christ. And first of all, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ was, was foretold, whether it's all the prophecies concerning his birth and, and so on, whether it's his prophecies concerning his crucifixion and, and death on the cross. It was prophesied and promised, he said. And the second thing, in verse 3 then, he says, it, it was, he was born of, he, of the seed of David. The Lord Jesus was born of the seed of David. And therefore... He is the son of God. The third thing, he is the son of David according to the flesh. Now what you see in these things is Paul immediately re refers to the Lord Jesus Christ who was born of the seed of David. That not only speaks of humanity, but it speaks of his link to David, that he was the rightful heir of the throne of David. And that was important. Jesus Christ had the right to claim to be king of kings and lord of lords because he was heir to David's throne. And the Davidic covenant had to do with God promising to David a man that would sit on his throne forever and ever. And as the Bible develops that theme, it teaches us that someday Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David in a literal, physical, millennial kingdom here on the earth. And Jesus Christ is of his seed. He's a descendant of David, a son of David. He is the rightful heir. So not only speaks to his, his humanity, but also to the right, he's rightful heir of the throne. And then we also see a reference to his deity. He's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so his, his deity is displayed in the power of the resurrection that's raised by the spirit of God. And so here we find a reference to the fact that he is deity. He is both man and God raised from the dead to eternal life. Paul really hits the ground running in this. There's a lot. We could spend a lot of time in, just in these few verses. He hits the ground running when he lay, begins to lay the foundation for his ministry and his message. That's what he's doing here. Paul's not coming of his own authority. 
He's coming on the authority of God. So this speaks to the authenticity, to the authority of his message and ministry. The scriptures was the Old Testament authority. The Davidic covenant concerning a king gave him, it was, gave authenticity to the message of Jesus Christ and the divine power was demonstrated in his resurrection, demonstrates the approval of God upon the person and work and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was approaches them, first of all. Remember, he hadn't been there. He hadn't visited Rome yet. He knew of the believers. He knew many of the believers there. But he was coming to them, not in his own authority, not because he was going to come and flex his apostolic muscles and, and prove he, could, he should be number one. He was coming on divine authority, on the authority of the scriptures fulfilled in Christ, and also on, on the calling that came from God and God alone. God had sent him. His calling was of the Lord. and His message was a biblical one. And that's important, I think, and as we consider the Apostle Paul here, what we really see for us is an example, isn't it? And in all ministry, we need to recognize the, the pattern that we see in the Apostle Paul, that any ministry that we undertake is, should be and ought to be of the Lord. If the Lord's not in it, it's not, it's not divine. It's, it's going to be fruitless and powerless. It comes from the Lord, and the message we have must be biblical. It must be, that's what we have to share. And it's not that we share our wisdom and our insight as people. We share, thus saith the Lord. And, that was, that was, and that's what Paul desired. As he told the Corinthians, he prayed that their faith would stand in, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul here was authenticating his, his message and his ministry, leaving us a tremendous example even in that. And then he begins to talk a little bit more about his ministry here in verse 5. When he says, through him we receive grace and apostleship. First of all, his ministry was through him. His ability was through him. His authority was through him. It was through Jesus Christ. That's where it came. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. His enabling was the grace of God. We received grace, and that's his enabling power. And, and God in his grace has provided all that we need for life and godliness, and he's provided all that we need for ministry. As if we, as we are called to minister to one another, as we're called to fulfill the Great Commission, make disciples, be a witness, it is only by, by God's grace that that can be accomplished. It's only as we're dependent upon what he's provided for us. He's provided for us his spirit. He's provided for us his word. He gives us direction through his promises, and he promises to, to, to go with us in, in, in our ministry. His responsibility was apostleship. He says, through him we have received grace and apostleship. He says that's his responsibility. And Paul here is recognizing that, yes, God had sent him, had called him. Yes, God had given him a divine message to share. And, and yet his ministry was totally dependent upon God himself. He recognized here his responsibility to carry out what God had called him to. It was, and he was to do it through him. He was to do it by grace. And his responsibility was apostleship. And the purpose of that apostleship it says here in verse 5, was for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. That was his focus. That was his calling, for obedience to the faith. That's what Paul's desire was. That was what God sent him to accomplish, obedience to the faith. The faith represents the teaching of Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in Christ through the knowledge of the gospel, who would grow in that faith through the teachings of the New Testament. That was Paul's desire. That's his focus. And... And that included the Roman Christians in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. You're included in that. You're part of that, of that package of people, that family of people that I'm called to share the gospel with, the New Testament truth with. 
Roman Christians are included. They're called saints. That's not that they were perfect people, but saints is a description of their position because the word saint is related to the word sanctify. They're sanctified ones. They're saints. And so we're saints here today if you have faith in Christ. I mean, we definitely don't act it and always live it, but that is our standing. We're called saints. Which in essence then gave Paul the authority to shepherd and teach them. And so Paul here took seriously his calling and his ministry. And it was a tremendous way to view life. He had a focus. He had a purpose. He recognized time was short. And he was going to take advantage of his time on earth to bring people to the feet of Jesus. To tell them about the gospel, the good news of God's love for them and dying for them on the cross. And if you want to flip back to the book of Acts, just you're back here just a page or so. We're really close by. Paul reviews... In chapter 26, he reviews his, his calling here in verse 12. And he says, While thus, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, this is before he was saved, at midday, O king, along, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to, to kick against the goads? That is, the, the, they might say, the pricks of conviction that, that God had brought his way. He's resisting the love of Christ. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand in your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I will I now send you. He's going to protect him and watch over him. But verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so God sent Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes. That was his purpose. You know, an, an example of Paul, what we see here, as we go back to Romans 1, is we see what should be the way we view, all of us view life. Because we all have a calling, we all have a purpose, we all have a will of God to fulfill, we all have gifts to express. We are to do them faithfully, but we need to see that as the, in the priority that Paul saw. It's something we need to be committed to. What we really see here is a commitment to the calling of God, and we need to see people around us in that light, don't we? As those who need to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk with him. As Paul goes on then here in verse 8, he begins to talk about his desire to visit them. And, and first of all, he says in verse 8, first, first thing he wants to mention is I thank God, my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve from my, with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making requests if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And so first thing he does, he commends them. He's thankful for them. And this is genuine stuff. This isn't fluff. This isn't Hallmark cards that Paul found at the, you know, at, 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 at the local, local five and dime and thought this would be a nice way to approach the Romans. This is genuine. This is out of his heart. He actually likes somebody. And you know how he's... Christians. We find maybe a spirit of tolerance sometimes amongst Christians, but he has a genuine love for them. He was thankful for them and for the work that Christ accomplished in them. And what he appreciates about them is their out in the open Christianity. They were real. They weren't underground secret service Christians. Their faith was their faith was known throughout the whole world. They had a reputation that had spread. 
Uh, you didn't need the internet to spread news. It managed to spread quite quickly, no doubt, through word of mouth in those days. But they had a reputation, this Roman church, did concerning their faith. So what is it, what is it about their faith that you think that was known? Was it a simple general reference to their Christianity as a whole? Or was it the possibility of faithfulness to stand in spite of the persecution of the Roman rulers? Roman rulers persecuted Christians. They hated Christianity. And for this church to exist, right, in, in, in you know, might say in Satan's hotbed of, of atheism was, a, was an amazing thing. And so they, they, yet they stood faithful. They, they, were, they were living life in the open when there was all kinds of reasons to, to, to go underground. And yet they were, their faith was known through the whole world. They maybe trusted God in their trials, in their oppression. And they were sharing the message of Christ despite, despite the risk of persecution. Whatever the specifics, they were known. And what a great description. What a great thing to be, to be spoken of, of a church body and a church family. You know, and the reality of it is that when the person of Christ is real to us as individuals, then corporately he'll be on display through his people. That's what it comes down to. They simply were living who they were. They were Christ's ones, ones in whom Christ dwelt, and they were sharing his love, expressing his, his, his love, showing his goodness, and Christ was on display. And that's why we can... Believers today can, can join with the Romans and say this. Hebrews says this, let your conduct be without conversation. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we might boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. And it's promises like that that would cause us to stand up and be willing to be a, a wide open real Christian, to be what we are before others. It's not that we go looking for trouble but that we just live the reality of Christ in us. And we know that's not the only time Paul commended the church. He did the same thing with the Thessalonians believers in chapter 1. He commended them as well, that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world as well. They were well known for their, for their faith, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. And so here Paul is thankful for the reality of their Christianity. It was real to them. It had taken root in their lives. It was showing, being put on display. And it's not that they were trying to promote themselves, proclaim themselves. They were just living faithfully for Christ. Shining brightly in the darkness despite the risk. And that's what he was thankful for. And then we find in this passage that he cares for them. First he's thankful for them. And then he cares about them. I think verse 9, when he talks about his prayer for them, you, what we see here is a man who's passionate about others. Here's specifically the Romans. He cared for them. He's praying regularly. He serveth my spirit in the gospel, he says. It, it shows kind of a wholeheartedness. I'm serving wholeheartedly in the gospel so that without ceasing I make a mention of you and always in my prayers. And Paul is just saying, you know, I pray for you once in a while, but I get kind of busy sometimes, so I don't always get to it. No, there was, an, there was a reality. There was an intensity here and as Paul saw the importance of prayer. He thought it was important. In fact, you have to think that when Paul first mentions their, their faithfulness, who's of, what's spoken of throughout the whole world, and then he mentions his prayer for them, if he's giving us a link, a connection, the fact that Paul's prayers are being affected, are affecting their lives and their growth, his prayer for them, him, him, his, his being faithful to pray for one another's, to others help them. And we find that in the scriptures. You know, we're told to pray and to pray much, that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but Paul makes real connections, and I'm wondering if this is one of them. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11, when Paul talks about being delivered from some near-death experience in his persecution for his faith, he says this, 
who delivered us, referring to God, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us. Paul recognized it was their prayers that contributed to his deliverance. He, that's how real Paul saw the effectiveness of, of prayer. In Philemon 22, he says this, But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Paul wrote that from prison, and he thought their prayers were going to be answered. And I can't help but wonder if this is another one of those connections where Paul thought his willingness to pray for them at least contributed in some ways to their faithfulness in their lives. Because Paul didn't pray out of ritual or obligation, grudgingly. He was a prayer warrior. He saw that, he, that, that prayer was a weapon to be used in, when, when engaged in the battle for souls. He encourages us in Ephesians chapter 6 to pray for him that he would open his mouth boldly. Paul, Paul recognized the importance of prayer. And his desire was that, reaching back to verse 5, that their obedience to the faith would be fulfilled. Remember, that's his mission. And he saw prayer as a tool to accomplish that. So he, he, he cares for them. He long, and he expresses that, his care for them in his desire to visit them, in his longing, in his faithful prayers for them. And then he also he wants to see them grow as we go on. Verse 11 says, For I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gifts so that you might be established. He wanted to contribute to their growth. That was his calling. These are people he had contact with. And he knew there might have been some things they were lacking in their knowledge of the things of God. And he couldn't wait to get to them, to share those with them, to teach them, and to minister them, to them so that they could be established in the faith. You know, I think the apostles, when they ministered, to the early church, they laid the foundation of their preaching and teaching, weren't sure how the faith would be perpetuated. They wrote letters to the churches, but whether or not they realized these would become the canon of scripture, which may be somewhat doubtful. And so they wanted believers to be established in the faith. They wanted people who stood on, on the teaching of the Jesus, passed on through the apostles, so that their faith could be anchored and could be established. And that's what he wants them to be, to see them established in the truth of God. And that's what church is all about. Church isn't about doing our duty and obligation. It's about studying the word of God verse by verse so that we can become established. We can become anchored in the truths of God. And that was his desire for them. He also wants to share the joy of Jesus with them. Verse 12, he says that I might be encouraged with a mutual But we're still the same faith and the same person who we're growing to be like together. He wanted to share their joys because they share the same faith, the same Lord. And, and Paul, we had seen, was already encouraged by, in their reputation as faithful saints. And he wanted to encourage them more in his ministry by sharing more glorious truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it tells us, he, he also in this, this passage, this portion that expresses his love for them, he says, I wanted to come for some time, verse 13. I don't want you to be aware that I haven't avoided you. You might, you might say, I've often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. How was he hindered? Well, when you look at Paul's missionary's journey, he says, God just didn't let him go yet. God had other plans for him. He's other places, planting other churches, speaking to other people, and the Spirit of God had not led him there yet. And, and that's important for us to recognize. In fact, he mentions over in chapter 15, verse 22, where he says, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you but no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you when I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, and so on. God had him just doing other things, which is a tremendous testimony about sensitivity to the Spirit of God. 
Paul had a passion for the Roman believers. He wanted to see them. He wanted to teach them. What a, what a, what a great objective that is, to implant divine truths in their lives. But the Spirit of God had other plans for him. And so here Paul, we see Paul allowing his will to be subservient to the will of the Lord Jesus, to the leading of the Spirit, which is a tremendous example as well. And then Paul comes to verse 14 and, and mentions here his heartfelt obligation. And I believe this is the response to, to two things. One, God's will for him. He was called to preach the gospel, and also the love of the Lord Jesus which motivated him. He says in verse 14, I'm a debtor to all classes of people, upper class, lower class, and everybody in between. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. It doesn't matter what class of people they're from, which is important because I think too many Christians and their churches are like James chapter 2 where we kind of recoil at the undesirable and we tell them, you know, go sit up there in the balcony up there where we can't, you know, we can't see you or sense you or whatever and instead of embracing them in the love of Christ. Paul, his obligation was to all classes of life, but the point is he was a debtor. And Paul recognized what people really needed in life. He saw their spiritual needs from all walks of life. His attitude here demonstrates the true essence of the love of Christ, a selfless love, an unconditional love for the unlovable, offensive, and those who society deems undesirable, all in Jesus' love. And what a way to see people, isn't it? Instead of from the critical spirit of the flesh that cuts people down, Paul saw them with the desire to build them up, to share with them the thing they needed, the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for them. He was an obligation. I'm a debtor. And I believe it's that kind of obligation God lays on our heart as well. And so based on that, Paul says, I'm ready. So much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you in Rome also. I'm ready. If, and I think it's more than just a readiness. There's an eagerness here, isn't it? Paul says, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm like the dragster at the dragster, but I'm waiting for the light to turn green so I can get there. I'm ready. I'm ready. He delighted in an opportunity to, sh to share a life-changing message, a message that would bring people to Christ and help them grow in him. We don't see here any shame, any reluctance. This is reality to Paul, and it should be the and it's, it is example he sets for us. Because when this is reality, when Christ is real in us and we share in his love and his passion for people, nothing can hold us back. Nothing, and, that's a, and that's an effort that's not easily abandoned when it's the love of Christ that constrains us in sharing his love and we have a genuine concern for people. And everything else in life takes a back seat. That's what you don't see in the Apostle Paul. says, well, when I get, when I get back from my vacation, you know, when, you know, when I'm through building my garage you know, or my camel stable, whatever the case is, then maybe I'll come see you. No, he says, I can't wait to get there. Everything else took, everything else took a back seat. And you know, so, so, many, so many times we tend to serve Christ when it's convenient. And then it never happens, does it? So Paul was ready. And the Bible tells us to be ready, doesn't it? In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give an, a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But now notice it starts with sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts. A right relationship with God. Be, be, be submitted to him, yielded to him. Be obedient to him. It starts with a right relationship with with the Lord Jesus Christ that brings a readiness because it's born out of a concern for people. You want to give a defense of your faith. That means you want to uh, be present your faith to anyone who asks, to be ready. And that's 
that really is a unique approach to life because most of us approach our days with what do I need to get done today? How much can I get done today? Can I get some, check something off my bucket list today? Instead of saying, Lord, help me to, to first be redemptively minded, to consider those around me that you're going to bring across my path, that I could share Christ with through my, through my, through my life and through my lip. 2 Corinthians 10.6, in a passage that speaks of spiritual warfare, says as well, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. To punish all this disobedience means to expose it. Being ready. Being ready for the people God brings across our paths because they need the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a love that motivates us, a love for Christ and a love flowing out of the love of Christ for others. An eagerness to share. Not a reluctance. Not an obligation. Not a, 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 a ministry I'm, I'm dutifully obligated to. It's a love for those around us. It's really an overflow of life, isn't it? Of the life of the Lord Jesus in us. And so we see here in the Apostle Paul this, this, this tremendous description of himself. It's a lengthy portion about himself and his ministry and his love for the saints at Rome. And we find an example. We find here Paul's calling. And God has given all of us a calling. We find his ministry. And we have a ministry it's the Great Commission. It's, it's a ministry of edification. It's a ministry of serving others. And, and we have that message to proclaim. We're, we have the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. We see his love for others, which God seeks to develop in us, and we see a readiness, an eagerness to serve. And all these are the outflow of the life of the Lord Jesus in Paul and Jesus in us. See, being used by God to be a witness is simply demonstrating to the world a person of Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't call us to convert people. God calls us to share Christ with people. In, in, through our lives, we share his love, his kindness, his goodness, the beauty of his person. And through our witness, we share the message that saves. And that is what God calls us to do. And he's the one that, that, that waters the seed and that convinces people of their need to trust Christ as Savior. And so that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. It's a, it's a tremendous long, tremendously long introduction to the book, but it lays for us not only some important foundational truths, but a tremendous example of what it means to be a servant of Christ. An example that God intended for us to consider in our lives. And so as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, you know, thinking about this, we celebrate the Lord's table, we celebrate his love sacrifice on the cross along with his resurrection. But when the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's table, he was alive. And it was a fellowship, a celebration, even though he was anticipating the cross. And he told his disciples, he says, I'm not going to be able to do this again until someday I sit down with you in the kingdom to come. And when that when the first, it made it sound like the first chance we get, we're going to sit down and, and have a meal and celebrate together. And so we really celebrate life, don't we? Because that's what the cross accomplished. He rose from the dead. He's a victorious Savior. He gives eternal life and abundant life to us, and he shares his life with us. And it's that life the world just needs to see, and that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. It's expressed through Paul's determination in ministry and commitment to ministry, and his passion for people was all the life and love of Christ that he had come to know and that was being expressed through him. And that's what we celebrate. So as we celebrate the Lord's table today, May we consider not only his wonderful death for us, and that's our primary focus, the great love it took to take our sins on the cross, but what he was seeking to accomplish through that. 
to bring to you and I not only the, the gift of the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life, but to bring to you, as, you and I as well a life to live, a life he intended us to live, a life that was lost at the fall, but now is made anew in Christ as we are born from above and as we turn to Christ. So let's celebrate today his amazing love and grace, and then as we go our ways to, to, to live that life, share, as we share in his life, as we abide in him and enjoy him in our daily walk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example you put before us in the Apostle Paul. Father, one who met the Lord Jesus Christ or was taught of the Lord Jesus Christ and shares that truth with us in your word. Thank you, first of all, that he committed to the gospel and has shared through his writings the good news. And even as we'll see in this book, the good news of the righteousness of God that is available to any who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we're thankful for that. And as we consider the Lord's table today, May we rejoice not only in what he's done and accomplished, but what he's provided for us and the life he shares with us. And so, Father, make these things real to us. May we desire to have that same reputation, that our faith, our standing for Christ, our, our, our love for the truth and, and service towards others might be known through the whole world. And only you can develop that as you, as you grow us in Christ. And so, Father, today may we rejoice in him together and may you draw us to yourself as we remember our Savior. In Jesus' name. As we turn then to the Lord's table, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 11. Where we're told where the Lord Jesus instituted this, he says, he just wants to be sure you guys are going to remember me. 